Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You can download Spacetime as a free twice-weekly podcast just about everywhere, including iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Bytes.com, YouTube, SoundCloud, Audioboom, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. The show is also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science 360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. Coming up on Spacetime, new research into quantum entanglement and the speed of light, a new way to determine the age of stars, and discovery of an impossible cloud in the atmosphere of Titan. All that and more coming up on Spacetime. Welcome to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. New research indicates that quantum entanglement, the effect Albert Einstein referred to as spooky action at a distance, isn't just stranger than we imagine, it's stranger than we can imagine. Quantum entanglement occurs when two particles, such as photons, instantaneously acquire related characteristics, even when they're separated by great distances. An area of quantum physics, famously explained to us by Schrodinger's cat, tells us that, say, a photon can exist in all possible states simultaneously, called quantum superposition, until such time as it's observed or measured. And only when it is observed or measured does it take on a specific state, say 0 or 1. So the quantum superposition state of a photon is hypothetically both 0 and 1 at the same time, until such time as it's measured. However, once you observe or measure that photon, it loses its ambiguity and becomes either 0 or 1. Now, if you created an entangled pair of photons, let's call them Bob and Alice, by firing a laser through a crystal and splitting the photon into an entangled pair, then both Bob and Alice would retain their quantum superposition of being both 0 and 1 at the same time. That is, of course, as long as you don't observe or measure them. However, once you've observed or measured one of these photons, it would then become, say, a 0, and at the same time, its entangled partner would suddenly become a 1, even if they were separated by a couple of millimetres or 13 billion light-years. And that is what Albert Einstein meant by spooky action at a distance. On top of this, there's the problem of the cosmic speed limit imposed by Albert Einstein's special theory of relativity, namely that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light, 300,000 kilometres per second in a vacuum. To get around this problem, Einstein, together with fellow scientists Boris Podolsky and Nathan Rosen, developed an hypothesis in 1935 supporting the idea that some sort of hidden unknown variables are at play, influencing the outcome. Their EPR paradox, EPR being the first initials of their surname, claimed that the effects of quantum entanglement could only be explained if we assume that the universe is non-local. In other words, that the true basis of physics is hidden in what's called the hidden variable theory. Non-locality means the events occurring to entangled particles are linked, even when the events can't communicate through space-time. Then in 1964, CERN physicist John Bell developed his mathematical inequality, which confirmed that it's the very act of measuring a particle which affects its state. In other words, entanglement is intrinsically non-local. Subsequent experiments using photons, ions and other entangled particles have all confirmed Bell's inequality. However, up until recently, these experiments have failed to eliminate several potential loopholes. Then, in research published in the journal Nature last year, Dutch scientists led by Professor Ronald Hansen 
showed how two entangled particles located in separate laboratories some 1.3 kilometres apart on the Delft University of Technology campus still displayed quantum entanglement. The experiment was significant because it was the first to close two potential loopholes. One of these loopholes, known as the locality loophole, speculates that entangled particles somehow synchronise their behaviour ahead of time because they're close enough to communicate with each other. The second loophole suggests that the tests were only detecting a subset of entangled pairs. Now, the locality loophole can be eliminated by using photons which can travel for many kilometres without being scattered or absorbed. The problem is it's difficult to detect every single photon in these kinds of experiments, and of course that leads to the detection loophole. Alternatively, experiments involving electrons can be easily detected, but that can't be done over large distances, resulting in the locality loophole coming into play. Hansen and colleagues resolved the problem by using both photons and electrons in their experiment. Their experiment was set up using two imperfect diamonds, one in each laboratory. Each of these diamonds has a single nitrogen vacancy centre, which is essentially a trap measuring electron spin. Each nitrogen vacancy centre emitted a photon entangled with its parent nitrogen vacancy electron. Both photons then travelled to a detector, located hundreds of metres away from the source diamonds. The photons were then measured at the detector, and the nitrogen vacancy electrons became entangled through entanglement swapping. Fluorescence technique was then used to measure the spin state of each of these electrons. Hansen and colleagues ran some 245 trials over 220 hours, confirming Bell's inequality. The large distance between the two diamonds and the rapid measurement of the electron spins closed the locality loophole, and the high efficiency of the spin readout technique closed the detection loophole. So, does this mean that quantum entanglement must involve travelling faster than the speed of light, maybe even instantaneously? Certainly faster than light travel would be needed for the entangled particles to communicate with each other over the distance measured in the experiment by Hansen et al. The problem is most physicists believe that faster than light particles, such as the hypothetical tachyon, don't exist because they would break the known laws of physics. Now new research by scientists including Martin Ringbauer from the University of Queensland have weighed into the debate, helping to resolve some of the issues. They've shown that even if a hidden variable were to travel instantaneously from one entangled photon to the other, it still wouldn't explain the complementary properties shared by the two particles. Ringbauer says, while the research helps, there's still a long way to go. In the famous uh, 1935 paper, the EPR paper, um, Einstein, Podolsky and Rosen uh, described some counterintuitive behavior of uh, entangled quantum systems. So classically, if you think of a composite system, something composed of, of two subsystems, then the properties of this composite system is fully determined by the properties of the individual systems. Now, for entangled quantum systems, that's not the case anymore. So if you, for example, have a system composed of two particles that are entangled and you perform measurements on only one of them, you get completely random results. But if you measure both of them, then the results will always be the exact opposite of one another. So they're perfectly correlated. So one would have upspin, the other would have downspin, that sort of thing. Exactly, or, or vice versa. Mm. And what this means is that the complete state of the system is perfectly determined but the state of the subsystems is not determined at all. And that's completely against what we know from classical physics. And what is more is that it now looks like Alice. So if we 
we usually talk about Alice and Bob. So you have a pair of particles, you give one to Alice, you give one to Bob, and they perform experiments. And now it looks like Alice can change what Bob will get. So depending on what measurement Alice does and what results she gets, that has an effect on what Bob will get. So that's, that's kind of the EPR paradox. So the obvious concern, of course, is that this doesn't agree with relativity, which tells you that nothing can go faster than the speed of light. So if Alice and Bob are far enough apart, then there should no, be no such correlation. And now EPR, so Einstein, Plowski, and Rosen, they concluded that quantum mechanics must be incomplete. It doesn't tell us the full story. So they suggested there might be some hidden variables that you add to quantum mechanics in order to explain why there is this correlation, no matter how far apart the particles are. And this is sort of where John Bell comes in, isn't it? Yes. So at first, this whole issue was considered a philosophical debate and didn't receive much attention. But then 30 years later, John Bell formalized this argument. And more importantly, he showed that it actually is experimentally testable. And Another 50 years later, last year, we finally got three experiments verifying Bell's predictions in a watertight way. Bell's theorem essentially is a statement about cause and effect. We're all familiar with cause and effect arguments. That's essentially the basis of all empirical science. In our everyday lives, we come across this all the time. So consider, for example, you're in a room, you're looking at someone flicking a light switch and at the same time the light goes on and off. So you observe a correlation between the light switch and the light and by watching this for a little bit and maybe trying it out yourself, you then work out that the light switch is the cause for the light to go on and off. And more generally, we say whenever there is a correlation, so whenever two things, two events happen at the same time, then either one causes the other or there is some third event, a common cause that causes both of the first two events. And that's essentially what Einstein said. There is a hidden common cause for the correlation that we see between Alice's and Bob's particles. That's the hidden variables. The universe, space-time, whatever, is intrinsically non-local. The very act of observing a particle changes its state or affects its state, I should say. That's the most prominent one. So essentially, Bell formalized all of this, and he called this local causality. So that's the central assumption of Bell's theorem. And local causality says that in a Bell experiment, where Alice and Bob share a pair of particles and do experiments on them, that Alice's measurement outcome should only depend on her measurement setting and on the hidden variable, but it should not depend on anything that happens on Bob's side of the experiment, because Bob is very far away. That's local causality. And then from this, Bell derived an inequality that must be satisfied by any experiment that Alice and Bob can do, which satisfies local causality and has some hidden variables. And now what we've seen in the experiment is that this inequality can be violated by quantum systems. And this tells us that something goes wrong. And local causality is one thing to look at. So it could tell us that local causality does not hold for quantum systems. And this is what, what we mean when we talk about quantum non-locality. That's this alternative. So what the Bell experiments last year showed is that quantum entanglement cannot be explained in terms of hidden variables, in terms of local hidden variables. So there could be non-locality, that's one of the options. It could be that another assumption in Bell theorem is the problem. So there are a couple of assumptions in there. So looking at local causality, it could be that something goes faster than the speed of light, and that explains what happens. Now, this is where our research comes in. So we wanted to look a little bit deeper and see which of the assumptions are actually the problem. So the Bell experiments that were done, they tell us that something doesn't work out, but they don't tell us what exactly it is. And so we looked at the case where local causality fails in the way 
say that Alice's measurement outcome is actually the cause of Bob's measurement outcome. So Alice observes spin up, and this is the cause for Bob observing spin down, that kind of model. And so there is a little caveat there. So this influence from Alice to Bob must be hidden in a way that Alice cannot use this to send a message to Bob. Because if she could, that would violate relativity, which we believe is not valid. But that can be done, and such models exist. And so we wanted to test this. In order to test this, you have to somehow determine whether there is an influence from Alice's outcome to Bob's outcome. So coming back to the light switch example from before, if you watch a person flick the light switch and the light goes on and off, you cannot actually say that the switch causes the light. It could also be that the light causes the switch or that there is a hidden cause that is the cause for both, something that causes the person to switch the switch and the light to go on at the same time. But if you can go in and flick the switch yourself, then you could conclude that the switch is the cause for the light. So that's what we did. We went in and we changed Alice's measurement result after she had made the choice what she wants to measure. And then we see if there is an influence on Bob's result. And so what we found is that this kind of model where Alice's measurement outcome is the cause for Bob's measurement outcome cannot explain quantum correlations in a causal way. How did you feel when, uh, when you got that result? <laughs> well, it, it, it's, it's a nice result. It tells us that we have to look a little bit deeper. That was a prominent model, and um, it was believed that this kind of model can explain quantum correlations. So it was, it was kind of surprising that we could test that in the first place. And that has been the case with many of these questions lately, where a lot of these issues have been considered philosophical issues, but a lot of that has become testable now. But there's still more work to do, because like we showed that this kind of explanation doesn't work, but we still don't know what the real explanation is. So what are we looking at? Where do you think we're going with this? If we are looking at something that's instantaneous, does that mean additional dimensions that, that are allowing this to occur that don't involve space-time and the speed limits posed by that? Our result actually covers infinite speeds as well, mm. from Alice's measurement outcome to Bob's measurement outcome. But the important bit here is nothing that we're looking at violates relativity. So relativity tells us that you cannot send a message faster than the speed of light. It doesn't say that nothing can go faster than the speed of light. So you could have causal influences faster than light or even instantaneous as long as they don't allow you to send a message. So that's why the kind of explanation that we tested in our experiment does not violate relativity. Now, as I said before, there are a couple of assumptions in Bell's theorem. And any of them could be the reason why quantum systems violate Bell inequality. So another assumption that Bell had is, for example, that we are free to choose measurement settings. There are theories which say that everything is predetermined, so you cannot actually freely choose your measurement setting. Or it could be that things, causal influences, go into the past. That's what we call a retrocausal model. So all of these are assumptions that are in Bell's theorem that need to be tested. At the moment, we don't know how to test them, but hopefully we'll get there soon. And some of them are, again, philosophical, aren't they? Well, at the moment, yes, but we also thought that of what we just tested. So as the theory developments advance, more and more of these questions actually come into the realm where you can test them experimentally. I guess it also means it's just more proof that the laws of physics as we understand them are, have a lot of holes in them. They're nowhere near complete. Yeah, there's still a lot of things that we don't understand especially about what quantum mechanics really tells us about how the world works. We are very good at using quantum mechanics to do calculations, to uh, build devices, but what it really means physically, we don't quite know yet. And that's also another direction that 
we are currently working in is maybe we have to modify our understanding of cause and effect in the quantum world. So maybe we can develop a new framework of cause and effect that works in the classical case as we know it, but works differently in the quantum case in order to explain the observations on entangled quantum systems. So that's a very important research direction as well. What about things like uh, photons can travel at the speed of light? There are issues like time dilation. Our experiment is not restricted to photons. You could do exactly the same thing with two entangled atoms, for example. And one of the Bell tests that were done last year were actually done on a pair of entangled atoms. So you can do exactly our experiment in their system on the entangled atoms. And those atoms are just sitting stationary. They're far apart from each other, which you have to be to test the bell inequality, but they're just sitting stationary. They're not moving. And that would be an interesting approach to test our experiment, to repeat our experiment in this kind of system. That's Martin Ringbau from the University of Queensland. Scientists have developed a new way of understanding how stars like our sun evolve. The new research, reported in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, is the first attempt to build a comprehensive model for the activity and evolution of these sun-like stars. The study's lead author, Professor Eric Blackman from the University of Rochester, says the work could ultimately help determine the age of stars far more precisely than existing models. The authors combine data from a multitude of sun-like stars looking at the physics behind changes in the star's rotation rate, its X-ray emissions, magnetic field generation, and the intensity of its stellar winds. In other words, how quickly it lost mass. The Sun is a typical main-sequence spectral-type G yellow dwarf star, approximately 4.6 billion years old. The Sun has a mass of about 1.98855 times 10 to the 30 kilograms. That's about 333,000 times the mass of the Earth. The Sun's also about 1,300,000 times the volume of the Earth and has a diameter of 695,700 kilometres, some 109 times that of Earth. The Sun's luminosity is 3.828 times 10 to the 28 watts, with a surface temperature of about 5,800 degrees Kelvin and a core temperature of about 15 million degrees Kelvin. Our Sun is expected to keep shining on the main sequence all up for some 12 billion years. It'll then expand into a red giant, and after puffing off its outer envelope, it'll end its life slowly cooling as a white dwarf. Using our sun as a calibration point, the new model developed by Blackman and colleagues most accurately describes the likely behaviour of the sun in the past and how it's expected to behave into the future. And as there are lots of stars of similar mass and radius to our sun, this new model provides a good starting point for predictions about these other stars as well. The model shows that stars younger than the Sun can vary quite significantly in the intensity of their X-rays and their rate of mass loss. However, there appears to be a convergence in the activity of stars after a certain age. It seems they get more predictable as they get older. Astronomers aren't yet at the point where they can accurately predict a star's precise age. That's because there are simplifying assumptions going into the model. But in principle, by extending the work to relax some of these assumptions, Astronomers could theoretically predict the age of a wide range of stars based on their X-ray luminosity. At the moment, empirically determining the age of stars is most easily accomplished if the stars among a cluster of other stars, from whose mutual characteristics astronomers can estimate the age. At the moment, stellar age can only be estimated to an accuracy of about 25%. 
The problem's worse for field stars alone in space because the cluster dating method can't be used. For these stars, astronomers use gyrochronology and activity ageing. Basically, it means older stars rotate more slowly and have lower X-ray luminosities than younger stars. In recent decades, astronomers have empirically measured these trends in rotation and magnetic activity for stars like the Sun. Ultimately, this could well lead to improved constraints on the evolution of rotation and activity in Sun-like stars, and better constraints on how the magnetic characteristics of the Sun have changed over the course of its main sequence life. And this is really where the new model is important. It provides a physics explanation for how stellar rotation, activity, magnetic field and mass loss all mutually evolve with age. Astronomers have detected a puzzling ice cloud that's apparently formed out of thin air on the Saturnian moon Titan. A report in the journal Geophysical Research Letters claims the cloud detected in Titan's stratosphere is composed of a compound of carbon and nitrogen known as dicyanoacetylene, C4N2, an ingredient in the chemical cocktail that colours the giant moon's hazy brownish-orange atmosphere. Decades ago, infrared observations by NASA's Voyager 1 spacecraft detected a similar ice cloud on Titan. What's puzzled scientists ever since those original Voyager observations was that they detected less than 1% of the dicyanoacetylene gas needed for these clouds to condense. And now, the recent observations from NASA's Cassini mission have yielded a similar result. Using Cassini's composite infrared spectrometer, which can identify the spectral fingerprints of individual chemicals in Titan's thick atmospheric brew, researchers found a large, high-altitude cloud made of the same frozen chemical. Yet, just as Voyager found, when it comes to the vapour form of this chemical, the infrared spectrometer reported that Titan's stratosphere is literally as dry as a desert. The study's lead author, Kerry Anderson, from NASA's Goddard Space Flight Centre in Greenbelt, Maryland, says the appearance of this ice cloud goes against everything science knows about the way clouds form on Titan. Now, whether it's Titan or the Earth, the typical process for forming clouds involves condensation. On Earth, we're familiar with a hydrological cycle, which includes the evaporation and condensation of water to form clouds. The same kind of cycle takes place in Titan's troposphere, weather-forming layer of Titan's atmosphere, but instead of water, Titan has methane and ethane. A different condensation process takes place in the stratosphere, the region above the troposphere, at Titan's north and south winter poles. In this case, layers of cloud condense as the global circulation pattern forces warm gases downwards at the poles. The gases then condense as they sink through cooler and cooler layers of the polar stratosphere. Either way, a cloud forms when the air temperature and pressure are favourable for the vapour to condense into ice. The vapour and ice reach a balance point, an equilibrium that's determined by the air pressure and temperature. Because of this equilibrium, scientists can calculate the amount of vapour where ice is present. For clouds that condense, this equilibrium is mandatory, sort of like the law of gravity. But the numbers don't compute for the clouds made of dicyanoacetylene. Put simply, you need at least 100 times more vapour to form an ice cloud where the cloud tops were observed by Cassini. One explanation suggested early on was that the vapour might well have been present after all, but Voyager's instruments simply weren't sensitive enough in the critical wavelength range needed to detect it. However, when Cassini also failed to detect sufficient vapour, Anderson and colleagues proposed an altogether different explanation. Instead of the cloud forming by condensation, 
They think the C4N2 ice is forming because of reactions taking place on other kinds of ice particles. The authors are calling this solid-state chemistry. That's because the reactions involve the ice or solid form of the chemical. The first step in this proposed process involves the formation of ice particles made from the related chemical cyanoacetylene HC3N. As these tiny bits of ice move downward through Titan's stratosphere, they get coated by hydrogen cyanide or HCN. At this stage, the ice particle has a core and a shell composed of two different chemicals. Now, occasionally, a photon of ultraviolet light will tunnel through the frozen shell and trigger a series of chemical reactions in the ice. Now, these reactions could begin either in the core or in the shell. Both pathways can yield dicyanoacetylene ice and hydrogenous products. The authors got the idea for solid-state chemistry from the formation of clouds involved in ozone depletion high above Earth's poles. Although Earth's stratosphere is scant moisture, wispy nacreous clouds, also known as polar stratospheric clouds, will form under the right conditions. In these clouds, chlorine-bearing chemicals that have entered the atmosphere as pollution stick to crystals of water ice, resulting in chemical reactions that release ozone-destroying chlorine molecules. So it looks like Anderson and colleagues may well have found examples of similar solid-state chemical processes on both Titan and Earth. Of course, on Titan, the reactions occur inside the ice particles sequestered from the atmosphere. In that case, dicyanoacetylene ice wouldn't make direct contact with the atmosphere, which would explain why the ice and the vapour forms aren't in the expected equilibrium. While the compositions of the polar stratospheres on Titan and Earth couldn't be more different, it's still amazing to see how well the underlying physics of both atmospheres has led to analogous cloud chemistry. That's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audioboom, and from SpaceTimeWithStuartGary.com. The show is also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. This is Space Time with Stuart Gary. For more, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr. Just search for Space Time with Stuart Gary. Space Time is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine. This month, looking at whether the next generation of supercomputers will be able to handle the mega streams of data expected from the next generation of giant telescopes like the Square Kilometre Array. (laughs) 